Hello and welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. We're delighted that you have chosen to click play on this podcast. Each Sunday, our hope and prayer is to provide practical teaching directed by God that ties into everyday life. We hope today's talk encourages you. The greatest adventure of your life is just one decision away. But when we peek over the edge, it can all seem too much. The alluring safety of what has been. Even as you take the leap, you question your choice. It's easier in the shallows. Safer than the unknown. But something calls us to go further. Something calls us to go beyond. To expand our horizons. It's time to find the cure to our common lives. Time to push out into the deep. afternoon. It's wonderful to be with you. Just before we dive into the deep, I thought I would introduce myself. As Finn said, my name is Duncan Banks, part of the church here at Forge Thurston. And if you don't know my family, I thought I'd introduce them to you as well. These are my three boys, all grown up, um, as you can see there. Uh, This is my wonderful wife, who if she knew that picture was up there, she'd kill me. Um, she keeps our family together. She's an incredible woman. She's, I don't know what she's doing there, renegotiating Brexit, probably. That's how, that's how good she is. But uh, there is another member of our family, and it's this little girl, all right? She's dead sweet. She's stolen my heart. And she is the key to what I want to talk to you about today. So we'll circle back to her in a minute. But before we do, welcome to the deep. Let's dive in. It's where the real stuff of life happens, the powerful stuff of life happens. Because we all want something that's got a bit of weight to it, right? We all want something that's authentic and real. We want something that's got a bit of depth to it. And if you would call yourself a Jesus follower, why would you stay in the shallows? Why would you stay in the harbour when all the action is out there in the deep? Because it's in the deep where you feel the power and the presence of God. It's in the deep where you feel the thrills and the chills, the roller coaster ride of every day, not just in church for an hour on Sunday, but every day, the thrills and spills of following Jesus. It's in the deep where your faith gets sharpened, where your faith gets tested and made mature and made strong. It's in the deep where you experience miracles and you experience answers to prayer. It's in the deep where the life you've always wanted actually lies. So why wouldn't we dive into the deep? You know, the alternative to life out there in the deep is life in here tied up to the harbour wall. And we all know what life in the harbour is actually like, right? We know that life in the harbour is easy. Life in the harbour feels protected and safe. Life in the harbour is well populated. There's lots of people here. And let's be honest, life in the harbour can be fun. But we know deep down it's not what we were made for. We know that deep down, which is why often we find ourselves saying, you know, there's got to be more to life than I'm currently experiencing. Hmm. So how do we get out of the harbour and into the deep? How do we live out there where it's a little bit risky, where it feels deep, where the adventure actually happens? How do we find a cure for the common life? Well, if you were tracking with us last week, we talked about the importance of starting by getting Jesus right. Remember, we said it's tough to get life right when we've got Jesus wrong. So we put that right last week and we talked about a backward Jesus. And you can catch up with that online. 
This week, I want to talk about the importance of making sense of our story. Every human being comes with a story because every human being comes with a past. You have a story and you spend a lot of your life trying to make sense of your story. Does my story count? Does it stack up with other people's story? Where does my story fit in? Does my story have a, a purpose? Is there more to my story than I'm currently experiencing? So the bottom line that I want you to take away this week, my bottom line for this week is this. The only way to make sense of your story, the only way to find a cure for the common life is to experience the power of God's story. The only way you're ever going to make sense of where your story fits is if you experience the power of God's story. And of course, that statement raises a couple of questions. The first question is this. What is God's story? And the second question is, how do I fit into it? So for the next few minutes, I want to dive into discovering what's, what God's story actually is, because I'm convinced that as we do that, as we go deep with the story of God, we'll start to understand what our stories are and how they fit in. So let's start with God's story right at the beginning. Every filmmaker, every author will tell you a good story always has a cracking start. It's going to grab you right from the off. And I always thought the main characters of the start of God's story, the book of Genesis and the Bible, I always thought the main characters were Adam and Eve. <laughs> how wrong could I have been? Look how God's story starts. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Not you, not me. In the beginning, God. Not Adam, not Eve. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So at the start of God's story, we learn that it's all God. In fact, 32 times in the first 31 verses of the start of God's story, we find the main character described, God himself. Why? Because God is the whole point of the story. The second verse says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You see, there's a lot more to this verse right at the start of God's story than you might have first imagined because it tells us that we've got nothing formless emptiness darkness without God you see God isn't doing a remodeling job on the earth it's not that the earth was there and God showed up and thought oh this is looking a bit tatty it needs a bit of a makeover we'll remodel it and make it all brand spanking new again no no no, no. the Hebrew word for creation for create best translates out of nothing now some of you I know are incredibly creative people I've seen you some of you create great works of art and you use a canvas and oils or charcoals to, to paint with. Some of you I know are very creative when it comes to music. Look at the band here today, they've been great. And you create great music with guitars and drums and computers and keyboards and voices. Some of you I know, because I've tasted it, are really creative in the kitchen. You make great meals using herbs and spices and, and vegetables and meat. But none of you have ever created something out of nothing. Never. So in the beginning, God creates out of nothing. And if we don't grasp this idea right at the start of God's story, then we're going to struggle as the rest of his story carries on. Because if you can believe that God created the world out of nothing, you'll understand a God who can stand water up like walls in the Red Sea and a million of his people walk through on dry, dry ground. You'll understand a God who closes the mouths of lions when Daniel gets thrown into the, their den. You can understand a God who heals sick people, heals blind people, heals deaf people. You can understand a God who raises people from the dead. Because if God can speak creation into being out of nothing, then he can close the mouths of lions, he can heal the sick, and he can raise Jesus 
from the dead. So that is a pivotal verse right at the start of God's story. So the opening line of God's story tells us that it's all God. It's all God. But it also tells us at the start of God's story, not just that it's all God, but that it's all good. It's all good. So God starts creating things and he says about the things that he creates, it's good. That's really good. I don't know if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, but there's a part in the ceremony at a Jewish wedding where the priest will smash a glass on the floor and everybody gathered will say, Mazel Tov! Because Tov is the Jewish word for good. And so all the people are saying, this wedding is good, it's right, it's proper. And so God creates things and after he creates something, he says, this is Tov, this is really good, it's all right and it's proper. So he creates mountains and he goes, wow, that's good. And he creates the sky and he goes, wow, that's good. And he creates rivers and seas and fishes and plants and animals. And he says, boy, that is good. But God has not done creating yet. Genesis 1.26. So God created not just plants and trees and animals and fish and seas and mountains. He creates mankind. You and me, human beings. And he makes us in his own image. I don't know how valuable you feel today, but you have the likeness of the heavenly father in you. You have the family likeness in your face, in your being, in your character. There's something of God in you, whether you would call yourself a believer or curious or an atheist or anywhere on that scale. You are created in the image of God. Human beings are created in the image of God, not animals, not plants. I'm sure God loves your cat, but he's not been created in the image of God. I think for most cats, obviously, they've been created in the image of Satan. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. But God, thank you. Somebody who agrees with me. So God creates and it's good. But for the first time in the story, God steps back and goes, there's something about my creation that's not good. Genesis 2.18. The Lord said, it's not good for this man, Adam, who I've created to be alone. So God looks for someone to be with him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. You know, people often say to me, why did God create man before woman? And there's loads of theories about this. I think God creates man and he looks at man and he goes, yeah, that's good, but I reckon I could do a whole bunch better than that. Yeah, I see the ladies are laughing. I can hear an amen there as well. (laughs) So God creates Eve. And when Adam sees Eve, his heart beats out of his chest and he goes, whoa, man, which is where she gets her name from as woman, obviously. Um, I have a friend, his name is Nick, Nick Page. He's an author and he made his name Uh, many years ago by writing this book called the Tabloid Bible. He imagined the whole of the big story of God as if it was described by a Sun newspaper reporter. I love the book. You can still get it today. In fact, it's been updated and reprinted. I love the way the Sun newspaper reporter would have reported on Adam and Eve. It says this, he and she. God creates Adam upgrade. God has created a companion for Adam called Eve. The new creation is noticeably curvier and more aerodynamic. 
Among the improvements are more strate- uh, storage space and significantly less hair on the upper body. I think she's wonderful, said a completely love-struck Adam, three weeks. I was, <laughs> I was going a bit lonely there, what with only the duck-billed platypus to talk to. I'm delighted to be here, said Eve, 30 minutes. I don't think of myself as subservient. I think I'm more of an upgrade. Man 2.0, if you like. Eve also believes that she will be able to help out around the garden. I want to help Adam, she said, as best as I can. I'm looking forward to life here in the garden. The fruit looks lovely, especially the apples. (laughs) And we'll come on to that in a minute. (laughs) So God creates mountains and rivers and fish and birds and plants, and he says it's all good. And then on the final day of creation, he creates mankind, Adam and Eve. And he doesn't say they're good. He says they are very good. So it's all God at the start of the story of God, and it's all good. All God and all good. But then the story takes a dramatic twist. And God comes to Adam and he says this to Adam. He says, listen, Genesis chapter 2, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Look, Adam, this garden that I've called Eden for you is full of beautiful, luscious fruit hanging off gorgeous trees. Fill your boots, son. You can eat as much as as you like. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. And for some time after that, Adam and Eve did what God said. They ate all the luscious fruit from the other trees, but didn't eat from the tree of good and evil. We've no idea how long that went on for, but it must have been a glimpse of heaven. Great relationship with each other, fantastic relationship with God. No sin, no shame, no guilt. It could have gone on for weeks or months or years or decades or even centuries. We've no idea how much that little glimpse of heaven went on for. And God only lays out one ground rule, not no Ten Commandments here. Don't eat from that one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you'll die. So in the beginning, it's all God and it's all good, but then it all breaks. And the rest of the story is about how and why our world is so messed up today. Because God's story at this point starts to recount the struggle between good and evil and how it all began. A pivotal moment in the story, because this is where God introduces to us the antagonist in the story, the evil one. Satan is his name. And Satan was an archangel who rebelled against God, so God throws him out of heaven. And Satan's plan, the only thing driving him from that day until this, is to drag as many people as he can to hell with him. Genesis 3, now the serpent, Satan in a form of a snake, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Oh, you'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is so unoriginal. These temptation tactics are the tactics that Satan used on that day and he's used every day since and he's using it today. This is how Satan works. He always starts by questioning God's word. Did God really say that? Have a think. I'm not so sure he did. And then he moves on from questioning God's word to twisting God's word. Did God really say, don't eat from any tree in the garden? No, that's not what God said. So he twists God's word. And he moves on from twisting God's word to denying God's word. Oh, you're not going to die if you eat from that tree. It won't happen. 
So he questions, he twists, he denies God's word, and then finally he reverses God's word. He says, you won't die. In fact, your eyes will be open and you'll be able to see things as they really are. In fact, you'll really start to live. See, this is Satan's tactic. He questions, twists, denies, and reverses God's word. And he's doing it to us today. Did God really say you shouldn't do that? I mean, go on. You've worked hard recently. You've been a good boy and a good girl recently. Have yourself a little sin. You deserve a bit of your own time. No one's going to find out. You want to cheat on your spouse with that other person? Go ahead and do it. I mean, you never know. They might be your soulmate. You might not know unless you find out. Have a bit of fun. You might like it. And you can always say sorry tomorrow, right? Because God forgives, right? That's what he does. He forgives. So why don't you just have some fun today? And then you can confess tomorrow. You see, Satan is the father of lies. And Eve buys the lie. So here's my question. Here's my question. How does a world that is all God and all good get so broken? The serpent, snake, was the savviest of all of the creatures in the Creator's perfect planet. The reptile surveyed the scene with keen snake eyes. Streetwise, armed with an arsenal of plausible lies, he slithered up to Eve, the woman, from her blind side, preserving the element of surprise. And he said, Hello, child. How was your day? I overheard your conversation. I just had one simple question. Exactly what did the Creator say? That thing about the tree, the evil and the good, how do you know that you understood? Did he really say what you think you heard? Maybe your mind twisted up the words. Did he say hands off all the plants? Don't look, don't touch, don't taste. What a waste that would be. Eve, the woman, pointed out the tree with the taboo. The tree of the knowing, the good and evil too. She told the snake that God had made it drop dead clear that everything else was free, every other tree. But if they took one tiny taste of the fruit of this particular one, they would absolutely, positively crash and burn. Ah, said the snake, faking genuine concern. The deity's afraid of what you're gonna learn. With just one bite, you'll be just like him. Eyes wide open, knowing the heights of what humans can do, knowing the depths, the despicable too. God would have no tactical advantage over you. You and your man could have the run of the place, total control over the food you eat, the life you live, the path you choose. With just one small bite, you could gain the whole green world. And that means 
that God of yours would lose. The woman Eve walked closer and closer to the tree. She sniffed and felt the fruit against her cheek. Totally wise, with open eyes, she said. What's wrong with that? Maybe my man and I were born for this. Born to know, born to control, born to rule. She swallowed hard and it was done. She gave some to her covenant partner, Adam. He opened his mouth and gobbled it down and the universe was silent. It was the cool part of the day and God was walking walking through the land he made, his ecosystem so magnificently put together, about to erode, about to implode before his sad and timeless eyes. He took one long last look and kissed the innocents goodbye. hiding, son. Eve, girl, what have you done? The ground, it's broken now. Under a curse, from bad to worse. Now your eyes are wise and clear. Now you know shame. Now you know fear. Now you know you're naked. Now you run for cover. Well, here's what's gonna happen. Life will be shorter. Pain will be greater. Work will be harder. Grinding it out by the sweat on your brow, the blood on your hands. Eve and Adam, even the bond you have will now be strained, slightly off, distorted, refrained. And as for you, reptile snake, Adam will crush your head. You will strike and bite his heel. You will feel the weight of the consequences of what you've done for eons. He looked them in the eye with a sigh. It's broken now, he said. And the serpent, he just smiled. You see, I I get chills when I hear that last line. 
the serpent, he just smiled. Because that's not just Adam and Eve's story. That's Duncan Banks' story. That's my story of failure and of sin and of rebellion and temptation. And I think actually we all get those kind of chills when we realise our own brokenness before God. So when the world starts, it's all God. And God starts to create things and it's all good. But then it all breaks, as we've just seen. But... And this is the point in the talk that you've been desperate to hear, right? But, but, very early on in this story, we discover there is hope. There is hope. It's a great story about a famous painter who was in his studio like that fella on the the screen. And he invites a crowd to watch his latest masterpiece get, get created. Big canvas. And he starts to paint and the crowd starts to start to watch. And he paints this really bleak scene. I mean, it's cold and it's grey and it's dark and it's despairing. It's very non-inviting. It's snowy. There are trees, but there are no leaves on the trees. It's desolate. And the crowd start to murmur. And he paints a little cabin in the corner of the screen. And the cabin is just grey and inhospitable and cold. And then... With one stroke of his brush, he transforms the mood of the room and he transforms the painting because he dips his brush into some gold paint and just flicks a bit into the window of the cabin. And suddenly, suddenly, this cabin becomes an invitation to warmth. Suddenly, there is a window of hope. Suddenly, there is something in the bleakness and the blackness and the despair, something that we can move towards. Listen, do you see at the start of God's story, it paints a very dismal picture of life, of brokenness, of broken people and broken families. But God dips his brush in promise and he gives us a ray of hope. He gives us something we can move towards because very early on in this story, even in the first couple of chapters, there are two windows of hope. And if you skip past them, you're going to miss something really important. They're so easy missed. So I don't want you to miss them. Genesis chapter one, the first prophecy, the first little window of hope is the first prophecy about Jesus. The first indication that there is a saviour who will one day come to fix the broken brokenness and the mess. It's the first time God talks about his son. See, God is talking to the serpent. He's talking to Satan. And he says this in Genesis 3, you will bruise the heel of Adam and Eve's offspring. You will do some damage to the offspring of Adam and Eve. That's Jesus. But he will crush your head. In other words, Satan, in other words, a time will come when you will do some damage limitations, some limited damage to the offering, the offspring of Adam and Eve. You'll damage him as he hangs on that cross on Good Friday. You will damage him. We talked about that last week. But on Easter Sunday, when God blows the rock off the tomb and gives life back to the dead man and he walks out of that tomb, he will crush your head, Satan. That's the first little window, the first little glimpse of hope, the first little ray of sunshine we get at the start of this story. And the second window of hope comes right after Adam and Eve eat that apple. See, when they ate the apple, they had this feeling inside them they'd never had before. This feeling of shame and guilt and nakedness. So they wanted to cover themselves up. So they just picked fig leaves off the tree and awkwardly tried to hold them over themselves. They did what you and I do when we get caught, when we get found out, when our own shame and guilt comes before us. We want to run and hide. 
But God does something truly amazing in this story. Because the Bible says at this point, God covers their sin and their shame and their nakedness and their guilt. He covers it with an animal skin. And in doing this, he was giving them a glimpse of what would happen to his son. What would happen to his son in this city called Jerusalem on Good Friday, thousands of years into the future. You see, God kills an innocent animal. There was, I don't know, maybe a sheep wandering around in the garden. Because in order for God to cover their nakedness with an animal skin, he was going to have to kill an animal. And Adam and Eve had never seen death before. And so God must have grabbed this sheep and slit its throat. And they would have watched as this animal struggled, legs going everywhere, blood pouring from its neck, its body twitching. And then the stillness. They'd never seen death before. And it it was as if God was saying to Adam and Eve, listen, in order for your shame and your guilt and your sin to be paid for, an innocent third party is going to have to make a sacrifice for you, a sacrifice that you should have paid, a debt that you owe. You see, God was saying it might look bleak right now. And maybe God's saying that to you this afternoon. It might feel bleak in your life right now, but there is a window of hope and hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. You see what I'm saying? The only way to make sense of your story, the only way to, if you like, to find a cure for the common life and get out there into the deep where life really happens is for you to experience the power of this story, of God's story. And when I say experience, I mean grab hold of and embrace So how do we do that? If that's the way to get out into the deep, how do we grab hold of and embrace the power of God's story? Well, this is something that Jesus wanted his disciples to to figure out. So he went to work on his disciples, Matthew records. And Jesus says this, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You want to become my follower? You need to let me lead. It's about my agenda, not yours. It's about what I want to do with your finances, not what you want to do. It's about what I want to do with your dreams and hopes and ambitions and your time and your schedule, not about what you want to do. You want to be my follower? You have to let me lead. And it's as if, it's as if Matthew clarifies it. Jesus then said, you're not in the driving seat. I am. It's like driving down the road and we see Jesus on the side and we go, I fancy a bit of Jesus in my life. That could be cool. Hey, Jesus, hop in. There's a seat in the back. And Jesus makes it really clear. You see me on the side of the road and you want me to be part of your life. I'm the one who's driving. It's my agenda from now on. You follow what I say. I'm in charge. I know you keep leading yourself down blind alleys. I'll take you out into the deep, the life that you were intended to live. You want this deep life? then you're going to need to put me in the driving seat. And that brings me right back to some of the dog. Now, if my wife knew this, she'd kill me, so please don't tell her. Um, I did a little experiment with my dog. See, my dog has treats like most dogs do. She has these little treats called marquees, and then she has a one big treat called a dentist stick. She loves her marquees, little tiny treats that she goes away and eats. And she loves her marquees more than anything. Sorry, no, the, the dentist stick more than anything. So I did this little experiment a few days ago with her. She sat in front of me because I'd got the treats. I'd got all the little marquees in one hand and the big dentist stick in the other. And normally what would happen is I would give her a little marquee, a little treat we'd gave, given her two or three times during the day. And she'd hop off to a little corner in the room and in private she would enjoy her little treat. That's what she would do. So she looked at me. 
saw the big um, dentist stick, big treat, and saw the little treats. And I popped one of the little treats in her mouth. And she went to go and eat it. And then she thought, hang on a minute, what's he going to do with the big treat? And so I just stood there for a bit and she didn't eat the treat. She just left it in her mouth. So I popped another one in her mouth and she took it. And then another one. She had three treats in her mouth and her mouth was full. No room for anything else. She wasn't eating them. And at one point she's thinking, what do I do now? And so she actually turns and begins to head out of the kitchen. But then she stops and comes back because she's enthralled by this big treat. And I thought, what is she going to do? You know what she did? You know how she overcame the dilemma? She dropped the little treats and she looked at me and I gave her the big treat and she ran off into a corner somewhere and enjoyed it. Listen, that is the situation you're in right now. It's the situation you're in right now. It's as if Jesus is saying, I have a gift, a treat for you. His actual words were, I've come to give you life. And the fullest, the best, the most gloriously imaginable life you can dream of. I've come to give you that. Because you aren't a number to me. You know that, don't you? You're not a number to God. You're not one in a million to God. You're not just a face in in the crowd to God. He is crazy about you. He has this deep life that he's literally dying to give you. (laughs) And right now it feels like Jesus has kind of wandered out here on the stage and he's standing in front of you. And he's saying, here it is. Here's the life I want to give you. The life you've always dreamed of. The deep life. The significant life. The life that has a sense of purpose about it. I want to give you the get out of the harbour kind of a life. And right now, like my dog, you're sat there holding on to your life. And you have a dilemma. Listen, if, if you don't ever remember anything I've said these past couple of weeks, and if I never get invited to come back here and speak, and maybe they shouldn't invite me because I've gone on far too long this weekend, last week. But if you don't remember anything else, please, this sums up everything. This is the secret to how you find that deep life that Jesus is longing to give you. And in your heart of hearts, you know you want. Please remember this. In order to grab hold of the life that Jesus wants to give you, you are going to need to let go of the life you're holding on to. In order to grab hold of this deep life, this significant life, this life which is a story you could only dream of right now, you're going to have to let go of the life you're holding on to. You're going to have to let go of your dreams and ambitions. You're going to have to let go of your aims. You're going to have to let go of how you spend your money and how you spend your time and what relationships you have. You're going to have to let go of all that and say, Jesus, you're in the driving seat. I'm letting go of this and I'm making you in charge. You lead and I will follow. If you want to grab hold of, embrace, experience this story, the powerful story of God, you're going to need to let go of the life you're holding on to. So my final question is this. What are you going to do right now? Let me pray. And as I'm praying, let's let's close our eyes. And as I'm praying, what I I want you to do, I want if you can just to, to hold your two hands out like fists here. If you don't want to join me, this is fine, but I'd love it if you do. Just follow me. Close your eyes and hold your hands 
tightly together. It's just a symbol of the life we're holding on to. God, this is us. Like that dog, we have a dilemma. Do we let go with, uh, of what's in our hands, our own life, our own dreams and ambitions? It's a vulnerable place to say, Lord, I'll let go of those things. But your promise is that you want to give us life and life in all its fullness. And we're going to struggle to grab hold of that life. We'll drop it because we haven't got any fingers. We haven't got any open hands. When anybody gives a gift, you open your hands and say thank you. And we can't open our hands and say thank you because we're hanging on to stuff. Maybe we're hanging on to relationships that we really should have let go of. Maybe we're hanging on to the pursuit of something that isn't healthy for us. And so I want to encourage you as you're sat there with your eyes closed and your fists tightly closed, I want to as a, encourage you as a sign to yourself and as a sign to heaven that you want to open your hands to this rich life. I want you right now, if you would love to receive this gift from God, just open the palms of your hands and let God lead you. Invite Him into the driving seat. And I honestly believe as we sit here, heaven sees our posture. Right now, heaven's looking down and God sees your posture. It's open-handedness towards Him. And God's not too busy and not too tired and not afraid to come right now and fill you with the power of His Holy Spirit and give you the gift of this rich, deep life that you're longing for. And so God, I pray you will not disappoint your people. Maybe some of us, Lord, are holding out our palms for the first time. For the first time, we're saying, I'm not quite sure what it means to follow you, but I've made such a mess of my life. You jump in the driving seat. You can't do any worse than me. And so we open our hands to say, come and give us the gift of deep, rich life. For others of us, Lord, we've opened our palms and we're, in our mind, we know exactly what it is we're letting go of. And it's been tough because we've held on to it for so long but we're letting go of it. And we're asking you in its place to give us the gift of life. Lord, this is our symbol of coming out of the harbour, of untying ourselves from the harbour wall. This is the symbol of taking a risk and going out to the deep so that we can experience the power of your story in our lives. And so God, I ask that you would hear our prayer in the beautiful and the strong name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, Amen. That's all for this week. Thanks once again for joining us. We'd love to keep the conversation going, so please check us out on social media at Forge Church and check out our website, forgechurch.com, where you can give financially, watch new content and see any details of events we have going on here at The Forge. See you next week.